You know, I forgot how bad this episode is. Oh, it's not lamentation status, it's just... This is a bad episode. It, it commits a lot of fairly basic cardinal sins of fiction and writing in general. Now, what's funny is I had this whole thing prepped. You see, next Tuesday, not tomorrow, next Tuesday, I checked the calendar, an episode's going live where I'm going to rip Rick Berman to shreds. And, uh... Obviously, I've already recorded that from this perspective. And I wanted to share a thought by Rick Berman here. And it was to, to kind of help make a point. See, part of the problem with Rick Berman is that he's really limited on what he allows. Okay? So this is direct from the man's mouth, okay? My biggest problem with this was it broke rules more than anything else sixth season. The teaser and the first three acts of this are done in flashback and narrated by Beverly. It took me a while to sign off on that, but everybody was very big on it, and I think it worked out okay. Then he talks for a while about how you're not supposed to use narration and blah, 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 okay? So in other words, his big problem with this episode was the fact that it had a framing device. And that was his biggest problem with it. Actually, he had one other problem with it, which I'll talk about in just a second. <clears throat> but... That was his big problem with this episode. It was too out of bounds. It was too out there because it had a framing device. Now, you might wonder what this has to do with anything. It, it's, I'm just trying to establish the point that the man has an extremely narrow view of what exactly is allowed and isn't allowed with regards to the show, and this is just more evidence of that. <sighs> Anywho, <clears throat> did you know this is the final Guinan episode? I mean, obviously she shows up in Generations, but... I've been told she's in Nemesis. I don't remember where. She must have been at the party or something. But I, I know she's in Generations. She's a character in Generations. But this is basically it. Nothing at all in seventh season. Which is interesting, because you'd think she'd have a relevant point in all good things. But nope. Anyways. So the episode starts, and she's there. And you know the beeping comes very rapid fire. Now, given what we know later, that actually makes sense. But I've always kind of wondered what it's like being on the other side of the, the doorbell, so to speak. Like, you ever think about that? Sometimes it makes sense, and most of the times it actually doesn't. They either to spend way too much time in between beeps, or way too little. One of the two. Anyways, so she's like, beep, beep, beep. And she comes in and says, yeah, I'm not a doctor anymore. Da-da-da-da. Okay, credit where credit is due, that's a good teaser. It's a good cold open. I'm with it. Awesome. Then she starts narrating. I'm going to talk about narration. Like, really talk about it. But before I do that, I want to talk about the Ferengi dude. They actually reshot several of his scenes. Do you know that? Now, on the off chance you don't understand the significance of that, I've actually talked about this before. Star Trek The Next Generation doesn't do reshoots like 99% of the time. In fact, they don't even do uh, rehearsals. I couldn't think of the word for a second. They don't even do rehearsals. They look at their lines, they, they, they're given their, their beats, the director talks to them, they record, and then they're done. Almost every shot we see is actually their first take. Which uh, is actually pretty impressive when you think about it. Anyways, <clears throat> but they actually reshot several of his scenes. Why? Because Rick Berman said he wasn't being Ferengi enough. What I find interesting is part of the point of the episode in-universe is to try and dispel some of the biases and otherwise flaws of how people perceive Ferengi. 
if you'll remember, this is actually something that Armin Shimmerman specifically went into Deep Space Nine with the intent to do, to show that there are other sides to the Ferengi other than the, the joke that they've been throughout TNG's run, right? And I only point that out because it helps to showcase how much this is still kind of a lingering problem. In fact, I'm pretty sure people to this day still probably think of Ferengi more as the joke than as the serious thing, at least in, like, popular consciousness, right? I mean, even The Magnificent Ferengi, which was actually a pretty good episode, still kind of reinforced the problem. But to me, the idea of a Ferengi scientist makes perfect sense. I mean, in fact, it makes so much sense it kind of has to exist. <laughs> right? I mean, think about this for a second. Think about the Ferengi society and how they are an interstellar power and how they have their own tech and their own people and their own... How does any of that exist if they're not scientists? This is one of the little backdoor problems that kind of exists when you have a race of hats. Because you think they're all about warriors, to use the typical example. They're all about conflict. Okay, well, how do they develop as a society? How do, how do they move forward if everyone's a warrior or everyone's all about fighting? Because you need a whole lot of other things to uh, exist. Never mind survive. Never mind thrive. I said that wrong. Survive, exist, thrive. In order to actually push forward as a species. I mean, I want you to look at the way the Klingons are portrayed in early Enterprise sometime. Just just do me a favor and look at that. And then tell me that those people developed a working cloaking device. Yeah, I know. There's, there's ways to try and walk and talk around that. Okay, fine. How are they in space at all? <laughs> These are people I wouldn't trust with a car. Anyways. <clears throat> so Frankie Scientist be more Ferengi. And I noticed a lot of his scenes, even though he's not saying anything in a positive manner or in a happy manner, he's smiling. And I can't help but think that these are the scenes that, that were redone, just to make sure that he's talking like this. I mean, he's not actually varying his tone at all. And in fact, there's nothing really in, encouraging the need for the smile. But it seems like he's just smiling. I don't even know what this looks like. I can't see myself. <laughs> now I'm actually smiling. But, you know, he's... <laughs> Just what the hell? Okay, moving on, moving on. So, uh, I'm sorry, to keep putting on this point, apparently, sorry. The heathen says a Ferengi scientist is a contradiction in terms. I suppose we could argue that this is, in fact, just an in-universe bias. And Lord knows we have that with national biases here in real life, right? You know, French people are cowards, and Mexican people are lazy, and American people are fat, and... I don't know what... Uh, Canadian people apologize all the time, right? Like, th these these have what amounts to no actual basis in reality. They exist for some reason. So this is the closest thing I could come to for some kind of explanation for what they're going with here. Is it all Ferengi or greedy, miserly idiots? And the uh, the message is that they aren't. Which would make sense, since that's a message that DS9 actually pushes pretty hard. I've talked many times over on the DS9 stuff in my theory that there's, you know, typical Ferengi which you tend to hear about a lot because they tend to garner the most, you know, attention. And then there's the actual smart Ferengi in their own particular fields who actually are good at what they do and do it properly and well. So, just food for thought. I've also always thought that Nagus himself qualifies. Speaking of which, well, no, let's not get into that yet. Let's, let's talk about the next thing. I, I swear I'll talk about narration at a point. The next thing I want to talk about is 
oh my gosh, we've invented this really big, amazing technology, and it's going to allow us to fly into the corona of a star. Now, okay, real talk, that's insane. Like, anybody who knows anything about how stars work and function, that is actually ludicrous. You should be less than ash before you even reach the corona, right? <laughs> so that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, anybody else see Redemption, part two, specifically? You know, Kern takes his beat-up old terrible bird of prey into the corona of the star to... It was, it was part of the opening. No? How about Iborg? Where, as a casual mention in a log entry, they talk about how they were hiding in the corona of a star to escape the Borg. You see the problem here? See, this is... If I could just go off for a second here, this is one of the things that actually pisses me off most about Star Trek. It's Star Trek has never really had a true mainliner. Not a showrunner, a mainliner. Someone who actually keeps the various stuff cohesive. Now, early on that makes sense. Just about any major franchise doesn't have a strong mainliner to start. It's because no one realizes this is going to be a major franchise. Like, when they were making Star Wars or Iron Man or the original series, no one thought it was going to turn into a thing. But then it did. And by the time TNG rolled around, it was already a thing. They should have already had someone in place to do this. Instead, they didn't. So there's no one actually steering things, but more importantly, keeping everything coherent and congruent. Someone whose job it is to not only give direction, but correction when it comes to script design. As a consequence of the lack of a proper mainliner when it comes to Star Trek as a franchise, we have every writer just making whatever the hell they want to up. Now, this is related to the problem that the showrunners don't really do their job properly, and I hate to say it that way. Ira Stephen Bear probably does the best job over on DS9, relatively speaking, as a showrunner amongst this franchise, but... Actually, that's not true. Many, uh, many Kodo did a good job over in Enterprise as well. So the two of them at least did their job properly. But Berman, who, if you remember, was the showrunner for a chunk of TNG, along with Pillar, along with, I can't remember his name, or his name, or his name. There's, like, there's been like six showrunners for TNG. None of them really did their job properly. So stuff wasn't kept coherent, even within a singular franchise. Or excuse me, a singular show, never mind across the entire franchise. This is the kind of thing that someone could look at and be like, uh, you ever wonder why I keep bringing up the whole beaming through shields thing? It's because that's not a small little nitpick. That's not a dinky little irritation. That's not some like, oh, they put the effects wrong. Okay. Or, oh, they mislabeled which, which door it was supposed to be when they were going through the set. Okay, whoop-de-doo. No, it's actually a major plot point. Multiple times. In multiple shows, actually, the beaming through shields thing. Voyager and TNG both make that mistake many times. Even DS9 makes that mistake now and again. So this is not a small deal, especially since this will also become a plot point later. So why didn't anyone say, uh, we've already done the Corona thing? I'm not even... I'm sorry. I have no... Well, that's... Okay, that's... I have no real professional experience making a television show, Okay. Like, I have worked in television productions in such an amateur level that I wouldn't even put it on a resume. Alright? <laughs> Everything I know about the production and construction of television has come through study and interest because it's a hobby to me. Because it's something that I'm fascinated by and I, I've thrown myself into it. Now, as I've talked about before, that only really applies to the production of television back in the 80s and 90s and earlier. 
because it's different now. The very nature of how you construct a show is different, and I think for the better, if I might be bold. But my point is, I, I'm not a pro. This is not my job. Okay, this is my job. You know, you get my point. And if some moronic, stupid, amateur idiot like me can point out things like this without even trying, what were the actual creators thinking? This, this leads me to a concept. I, I, I've talked about this before. For the longest time when I was a kid, I always assumed the problem was with me. I mean, that just, that's just so logical, right? Who am I to, to, to point out flaws in something? The people who make this are professionals who are paid money who do this for a living. Obviously, they can't be the ones making the mistakes. It aggravates me because I have to... I've talked about this before. I'm, I'm used to headcanoning things. I'm a fan of Star Trek is a phrase I've used more than once. The fact that we have to headcanon cherry-pick so much of Star Trek is aggravating to me. Um, so there's another gentleman on YouTube. I don't think I've actually called him out personally, although I've talked to him a few times on Twitter and whatnot, and I comment on his videos right now. Lore Reloaded. Cool guy. I like him. Um, he, uh, he likes to analyze stuff from the perspective of completely in-universe. Now, see, I actually kind of admire that because I can't do that. I look at inconsistencies and I'm like, well, that's because of out-of-universe reasons, right? The moment the answer is because real life such and such, because there was a screw-up or because there was a disagreement of the staff or because the writers weren't reading it or whatever, that's my explanation. I don't try to go for an in-universe explanation after that point because I already have the answer. You know, th th what's the answer in this case? Well, they screwed up. It was getting to the end of the season. Uh, this episode was basically thrown together by, I don't even remember their names, I'm pretty sure Minoski worked on this. Yep, by Minoski and Shankar. And they just didn't do their research and the episode kind of sucked, you know? That, the, the end, there's the answer. I don't think of it as, well, this is a different type of corona because, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't try for the in-universe explanation for stuff like this because it's just, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting way off topic here. But I wanted to rant about this because this is probably one of the biggest and most irritating examples of not doing their job when it comes to Star Trek, for me. I mean, there's other examples. There's hundreds of other examples. All of Discovery could be argued to be an example. All of Season 1 of Enterprise could be argued to be an example. You remember when they found holodecks on Season 1 of Enterprise? You remember that? Because I do. They weren't Starfleet holodecks, but, you know, they, they, they had freaking holodecks. <sighs> Anyways. <sighs> she chose this autopsy in Joe Brill. Did I mention he's alive? Now, this is actually kind of important plot point that I need to make, make a point of. Joe Brill is, in fact, alive. He is in a form of stasis. So he is conscious and listening to all of them, which is not what stasis means, but let's move on. And so that means he's just laying there being very, very still. He's like meditating or whatever while he's listening in. Okay, that makes uh, some sense. So, so autopsy, that's a thing you do to a dead body to really look into it and figure out what's wrong with it. Now, here, bear with me, okay? You kind of think that if there's an autopsy, there's probably going to be some incisions, cuts, you know, digging into the body. But by all accounts both in the dialogue and in what they show on screen, it's just an extensive scan. Now that's important, because it's the main, it's one of two main plot points of the entire episode. 
is that she does the autopsy on the, the Ferengi, whose name I don't remember, uh, against, you know, against orders. And she does this on Joe Brill, and he's dead. I'm looking at the Ferengi's name. Give me a second. Uh, oh, jeez, I don't know. Which one of these is him? <laughs> is it Kurak? Rega? It's Rega, isn't it? Dr. Rega. Anyways, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it's Dr. Rega. Point being, this is important. This is a major plot point that they just kind of stumble over because if there's no actual alteration of the body during the autopsy, then she doesn't violate Ferengi traditions when she does it to, to Rega or whatever the hell his name is. I'll just look it up. Hang on again. Going back to frame of memory. <laughs> pretty sure it's Rega. It is Rega. Okay, we're good. So, yeah. Now, this also leads to another thing. You're, I'm probably, you're probably thinking, well, Laura, obviously they, there was an invasive body. You know, they, she did cut into him. Okay. I want you to imagine that you're lying on a table, acting very still and very silent, and then someone just starts carving you open to see what's wrong with you. Go ahead. Picture it. I'll wait. Don't picture it. Don't actually picture that. <laughs> they don't use anesthetic on a corpse. Why would they? They don't try to be nice. See, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm sorry to go into some medical science very briefly. But if you're cutting into someone who is alive, there is a huge series of procedures that go into that. Even in an emergency situation, there are specific ways and locations and angles and tools you're supposed to use to cut. And, of course, there are certain other things you're supposed to do, either with regards to drugs or with regards to uh, deadening or whatever. You know, something to make sure that the body does not react. If absolutely nothing else, pain, by its bare nature, can cause a body to convulse, which is not something you want to do when you're cutting into it. Right? So there's very careful procedures for doing that to a living person. There's completely separate types of procedures you do when cutting into a dead person because they're freaking dead. Anybody who's gone to medical school can tell you about the old autopsy stuff. They have entire classes, plural, specifically on diagnosing and uh, perusing dead bodies because you still don't want to damage stuff, but the practice by which you cut in and examine is completely different. Okay? That's important because that's what she's doing to this guy if she's actually cutting into him, which I don't believe for a second. <laughs> now, I know, I know. He, he Later on, he has a literal hole in his stomach, and he's fine. So you could argue maybe he is, and maybe he's just living with it. <sighs> okay. I am not willing to give you that, but I will acknowledge that that might make a degree of sense. You might ask, Lord, why aren't you willing to give me that? Because this episode is written very poorly. I, I have a concept I call the writer factor, which is you know in the calculation of how much I... Uh, I can uh, look into or analyze or otherwise digest a fictional work. The factor is the multiplicative, right? So the, so the writer factor is how much trust I have in the writing of a particular work individually in order to dis determine how much I think that I can, you know, be like, oh, well, this is clearly... Basically, if you're analyzing something, you have to decide if you're reading too much into it or if you are picking up on stuff that was deliberately put there. And determining that line is, is it's, a, it's a nonstop struggle, basically. And I've been doing this since I was a kid, because I do this for fun, like I said, and now it's my job. In this case, the writer factor is very low. It, in fact, would be less than a singular number. So point something, which means it actually makes me less inclined to trust rather than more inclined. You with me so far? Okay, so having gotten all that out there, 
I suppose now's a good time to talk about narration. <sighs> narration is something that's been debated amongst literary uh, circles for, God, decades, I think. I know that I, I've actually participated in debates about it in school. Not, not college, high school. I actually took a lot of creative writing classes, and I think I've mentioned a few times I've actually taught a few as well back in the day. And this is actually one of the more common topics that comes up. Narration. If you've watched Cinema Sins on YouTube, let's just get all the YouTube plugs out here. You've probably heard them say, narration, ding. It's because, the, the core reason for that is because some people think that narration at all is an example of bad writing in anything other than a book. Narration itself is arguably a byproduct of this type of writing. Because in here, obviously this, this, is, this is not a book in the traditional sense, but I don't have a book in the traditional sense, so bear with me. You know, Nick Sagan, who was saddled with the premise, explains, Jerry and I were trying to do a bottle show because of this. I remembered him and blah, blah, blah. You know, so in other words, if you hear a character's thoughts or a description of events, that's fine because it's in the book. What's effectively happening is you are being told stuff and that you cannot see or otherwise perceive. It is, in fact, incumbent upon the, the writer of any purely written work that is not presented in any other way other than words on a page, to do a lot of narration or a very specific amount of narration depending on what type of story they're trying to tell. Okay, you with me? So the idea is when this is transferred to just about any other medium, including obviously visual, so uh, plays, television, movies, and video games, all of these would apply equally, when it, what applies there, narration is suddenly a bad thing because all the things that are being narrated are supposed to be shown. You don't hear a character say, I'm very sad right now because I was just stabbed in the chest. You see a giant knife sticking out of his chest, and he's like, that's the narration. Is Without dialogue, you get it, it's the whole reason why show, don't tell is such a commonly repeated phrase when it comes to fiction. Right? You don't hear, and then, you know, I'd pull up a Tolkien book, but those are in storage, you know, like, and the tree was filled with the bark of this 15th generation. No, you just see the tree. That, it's there. You can visually see it, and your brain just takes it in like that, because we can take in visual information at an extraordinarily efficient rate, okay? I know this is all base-level stuff, but I'm getting all this across, because A, I don't think I've ever talked about narration before, because it's never really come up, and B, this episode is part of the problem. So here's the thing. When the episode started, I was like, okay... And I had this note here about the usage of narration as a tool when it comes to a visual media. Because narration still has a purpose in visual media. Uh, the most common purpose is the stuff you can't showcase. Backstory, or very technical information, or... And I don't mean like, like you know, tech-tech, a lot of techno-babble. I mean stuff that has uh, specificity to it, you know. If you need to find, if, if it's important for whatever reason to know the exact temperature of a room, you, you, doing that within narration is a decent thing to do, or, you know, the exact location of where they are, or, you know, stuff that isn't going to come up in dialogue or visual presentation. That's the purpose of narration there. In fact, this is part of the purpose of the captain's log. The original captain's log was actually invented all the way back in the day, specifically as the lead-up. Here's our mission. This is what we're doing. Here we are. It's just a quick and dirty narration in order to establish you. It, it's setting the scene, in other words. And that's why the captain's logs have been used for, for years and years and years since. Because it is such a very quick and efficient 
here's the circumstance. The problem is then sometimes they tend to overuse the captain's log, but let's not get into that right now because that's not the problem here. No, the problem here is that Crusher is narrating this to Guinan. Okay. Now, some of the initial narration, perfectly acceptable. Uh, setting up the scientific nature of it, the symposium, all that stuff. Okay. The thing is, even that didn't need to be narrated. Hear me out for a second. So imagine if rather than narrating you know, that whole thing, what we see uh, is she's talking to Guinan, and it, have her say something that's more personal, rather than, this is what was happening, given these are, have her say, I, I, you know, at the time it felt like it was perfectly normal, and I don't even know what my issue was exactly, and why this was so important to me, I guess, you know, maybe I just wanted to reach out to raise and, and she's just kind of casually opening up to Guinan, and as she's talking, what we see in the background is the initial symposium, filled with people, and then maybe like a fade, crossfade as it's zooming in a little bit, as the number of people in the seats drastically reduces. And so start off with uh, Mr. Oh God, I've already forgotten his stupid name. <sighs> Rega. Rega's up there, you know, haha, and have his body language show that he's excitedly talking about his thing. All of this is silent, of course, over underneath Crusher's narration. Then... The fade, they're failing. He's he's a little more uh, nervous, a little more tense, maybe a little more, you know, antagonistic in his body language. He's trying to describe what's left, and there's like less, far less people in, involved. And then have the final fade in, you know, one more cross fade to there only being the four there. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yep, four. And they're all they're all that's left. And this is when the audio of the actual scene picks up, and they continue forward with the only ones who actually decided to stay, and then the episode continues proper. That is, see, I bring this up. I know this sounds so dumb, I apologize. But I bring this up because this is how you can invalidate or unnecessitate narration from a story. From that visual medium, we get all we need to know in a very quick and efficient manner. He's a Ferengi. He's presenting at some kind of thing. They find him laughable. He's upset about it. Only a few people are willing to listen. And then he starts talking. And then we get into the actual scene where he starts talking about, no, it will work. I've done the tests myself. Ah, but you haven't actually proven it, have you? No, I, I could be lying, but someone else could be the one to do it. You know, it just And just segue right into the episode. We get all the information and none of the narration. You with me? And that's the problem with the episode right there. The biggest flaws of narration are <laughs> telling us what someone feels, which should basically never happen. I'm not saying never, never, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so definitive about that. But it's the kind of thing that should be used very sparingly. A good actor or actress will convey what they're feeling without words. Or with words, even, depending on what they're saying. So you shouldn't have to tell us what a character is feeling. You're basically making a mistake there. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. There's exceptions to everything. But you can see how this is done very badly in this episode. There are many scenes where Crusher's literally like, I was feeling kind of determined, but then I decided to do this. And I, this was sort of upsetting, but I, I had to work on this. And just, you can, you, Gates McFadden can act. You can do this. The other big problem with narration is basically narrating events that we're seeing on camera or could see on camera, which I gave an example of earlier. And that's this episode in a nutshell. Her narrating the obvious for three acts. 
that's the first problem of the episode of like 17. Oh, anyways, moving on, moving on. So Picard reaches out to her as captain. Credit where credit is due, that's a good scene. No, seriously, that is a legitimately good scene because I really like how he would know and he's trying to reach out to her because he knows where she's at and she doesn't even realize where she's at. It's only ruined by the narration telling, just, just stating that outright. I didn't know what he meant at the time. Then, then, oh my God. then the episode commits the cardinal sin of narration, which is telling the audience something's about to happen as a stinger. What literally happens is, little did I know, it was the last time I would see him alive. Don't, don't write something like that. Never write something like that, unless you're doing like a satire or a parody. Okay, never seriously write that. <laughs> I've said before that cliches are not necessarily bad. It's how you use them. But that's not a cliche. That's just bad writing. <laughs> By the way, what makes it even worse? It fades to black, and as soon as they come back, he's dead. Seriously. So watching on the Blu-ray, it's even funnier. Little did I know, that was the last time I'd see him alive. And then there's his corpse. <laughs> just instantaneously. Oh. I know, I know. <laughs> so this then leads to them insisting that no one can touch the body as I said this is an extremely major plot point it's actually the main thrust of the episode it's, no seriously the, the actual mystery of the episode is actually more of a B plot to the main point of Crusher's decision to do the autopsy so um, I've already given the first problem with that you know the scans thing Let's go ahead and get into the second problem with that. She mentions, she actually has a line, quote for quote, a tricorder can't tell me what I need to know. Why? Tricorders, even medical tricorders, and by the way, I'm not, I actually don't think the distinction exists yet in canon. Voyager does actually make a point of distinguishing between regular tricorders and medical tricorders, and that does make sense. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Point being, the, um, the tricorder is an extremely powerful tool that can scan many things from literally miles away. And you're telling me that it cannot scan that body with enough detail to figure out what the hell. Okay. You're on the Enterprise. This thing has ridiculous sensors. Use one of them. I, I honestly cannot in good conscience believe for even a millisecond that she does not have the scanning potential on this ship to figure out what killed a guy without doing an autopsy, which, as we've already established, is probably external anyways. So that's the second reason that the big dilemma of the episode is stupid. Let's get into the third reason. Did you know the episode The Nagus came out, uh, looks like two... I wrote it down. Two months or weeks. Is that a W or an M? I think that's an M. I'm going to go with M. I'm pretty sure it's March to May. Uh, early March to late May. So yeah, Nagus came... The, episode, the point is, the episode The Nagus came out before this. And I know what you're thinking. Why does that matter? Well, over on DS9, which is actually doing some frickin' world building, we find out that the Ferengi have a custom of basically desiccating the body and sealing it into vacuum packs and selling those off to the highest bidder. Now, we know that this is a relatively common practice, one that just about everyone knows about. We also know that even someone like Quark, who is an extremely small-scale person, 
is willing to do this or is capable of doing this. It just the only reason they wouldn't do it is if someone wouldn't actually buy the pieces. Okay, that makes sense. So you're gonna tell me that no one wants to do the vacuum desiccation thing for this guy. Okay, I can kind of believe that, but the problem here is they mentioned how it's the belief structure of the, the presentation of the dead for the Ferengi to not touch the body, which is something that has never been mentioned before, and in all the years of DS9 coming forward, will never be mentioned again. It is, in short, a made-up plot point. The worst kind of plot point, because it literally exists because plot. This leads to another aspect of bad writing, by the way. I call it point A to point B. I've talked about this a lot, if you've ever watched my Voyager stuff. It's actually a really common problem. See, a writer needs to get to point B. That's where they want to be at the story. And in this one, if, if you zoom out the camera, you can really see the, the structure of it. They want Beverly Crusher to have a big moral dilemma. To choose to do what she believes is right rather than to, to follow orders, and in, in so doing, to try and suss out the truth about this situation, blah, 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 blah. You get, you get the general gist of it. That's where they want to be. Well, they have to get there. Well, in order to get there, they have to get from point A to point B. Now, I have said for years that one of the definitions of a truly good writer, of, of any medium, really, is the skill involved in getting from point A to point B. Then you have episodes like this, where they just are like, um, uh, you can't touch the Ferengi, and for some reason she can't get any of the information any other way. I remind you that the very point of the second mystery, the lesser one, is actually very poorly constructed in addition to that. In addition to the fact that the guy is just laying there and thing. I remind you that this guy, who is in uh, basically a freezer which is probably either locked or at the very least has some kind of vacuum seal. If you're trying to push a fridge open from the inside, kind of a thing, imagine that but more and worse. And you're in a position where you can't use your upper body strength to do it, okay? You're in one of those things, and you have to get out of that more than once. Go off, do something, like murder Rega, go back in, and then slide right back in as if nothing happened. Just, just construct that in your mind. Picture that, if you will. It's actually a really common type of logic, which I like to call horror monster, mo horror monster logic. The monster of any given horror movie usually doesn't follow logic. Sometimes this makes sense. You know, like uh, uh, Freddy Krueger, for example. He doesn't actually have to follow logic because of the very nature of what he is. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, like Michael Myers, who's just a crazy dude. And yet somehow both of them can just defy physics at will, even in ways that really don't make sense. Monster movie logic, or monster mo horror... You know what I mean, you know what I mean. Movie monster logic, there we go. So, this guy follows mo monster movie logic, and that's never a good sign, <laughs> just to start with that. Then we have to consider... Now, this is a really good one. I, I mentioned the monster movie logic. So, towards the end of the episode, she's like, oh my gosh, I knew it, it was sabotaged. So, she then leaves the morgue and goes to the shuttle bay and gets in the shuttle and leaves, okay? Now, you're he gets there before her. How? He not only gets there before her, he manages to get inside and hide in a little bread box or, or cargo side thing or whatever on the shuttle, on the shuttle, excuse me, before she even leaves. Then, while inside the bread box, he sabotages communications with the Enterprise. 
anyways. <clears throat> so getting back to it, let's rewind a second here because this just. There's so many things wrong. This really does feel like an early Voyager episode, which makes sense. I guess I can talk about that, too. I was going to talk about that in Season 7. We, we have Genesis coming up, don't forget. Early Voyager and late TNG are the same show. Different cast, uh, different sets, same crew. Same writers, same producers, same directors, with only a couple of exceptions. Same overall people who are making the show. Now, there's reasons that's good, and there are reasons that's bad. The biggest reason why that's bad is because of the fact that they were already kind of running out of ideas by late TNG, and they sort of carried that forward into early Voyager. They also seem to be a lot more accepting of just saying screw it to general good television or fiction creation in general in late TNG and in early Voyager. And if I could be completely blunt, they treated early Voyager like it was late TNG. And I think that right there is actually probably the single biggest problem. Rather than treating this like it was a brand new show, it was just TNG 2. And that's a problem. And it probably shows in the staleness of some of the early episodes. Now, I've said for years that Voyager managed to, man to, to do as well as it did because of the amazing cast that they had. They, they lucked out. They seriously lucked out by getting a cast and crew who really had great chemistry almost across the board with each other and got along with each other really reasonably well and knew their parts reasonably well. And that managed to drag them forward in terms of quality to the point where the show was acceptable until finally most of the people upstairs were kicked out of office and diverted away to other projects or just left the studio entirely. And people who actually had an ounce of talent and passion got in charge. And even then, they still had the answer to the boot of Rick Berman, who, I remind you, was paying more attention to Voyager than Deep Space Nine. I hate to put so much on this man, but I do have to say, I have said for years that the reason DS9 managed to stretch its boundaries as far as it did to be as good of a show as it was is because Rick Berman was paying more of his attention to Voyager than to DS9. Anyways. <sighs> where, where am I? God, hang on. So... Uh, I've completely gone off the off the script here, so to speak. Uh, why is why is Crusher the one investigating this? By the way, don't mistake me. I think we should have more Crusher episodes. I just think we should have good Crusher episodes. She still has to have sex with a ghost, after all. God, how many lamentations are we going to get in season seven? It's okay. We do still have some good episodes coming up. I swear. I, I hope. Um, she's investigating for some reason, even though that makes no sense, and she does an awful job of it. Even right at the early part of the episode, she's talking about the autopsy reports on Joe, uh, Joe Brill, or whatever his name is, right? And all of the autopsy reports say he's alive. I could tell that. And I'm not a med student of any variety. I listen to shop talk from family members, and I know enough medical science to know that everything she's saying is saying he's alive. So... <laughs> Duh, right? If nothing else, erective force field is something you can do. We even know they have separate, you, they have the ability to isolate sections of, of sick bay with force fields. That's been done before. So, anyways, the autopsy, how she finally decides, I must, I must use the autopsy. It's the only way. 
credit where credit is due. And I think this is a little bit of Minoski's in here, because Minoski does good character stuff. He always has. Uh, I think part of where this episode shines is because Crusher reaches out to Picard and just straight up admits it. Now, this is interesting. She didn't have to. You can't tell me she couldn't cover her tracks, because she could have. She's a damned good doctor. That's actually been a plot point many times. So she could probably have covered her tracks and just gotten away with it clean. Instead, she goes straight to Picard and confesses. Huh. I like that. I really do. Imagine if the two were in a relationship and how this could be presented in such a manner. Especially given the fact that he flat out states, I don't know how much I can defend you from this. Note she doesn't ask. She doesn't ask him to defend her. He offers it. He volunteers to try and use some of his political clout to move this off of her career record or whatever. So that she because he knows how important her career is to her and how much she doesn't want to, to terminate her commission over this one, right? But it was all for nothing. The autopsy told her nothing. Question Why? They never actually answer how Rega was killed. And there's apparently no DNA evidence at all on a guy who was murdered, probably by Joe Brill. They never say that either. <laughs> While he was in a hurry, remember, he had to rush out of the, you know, the and then rush out and go and kill him and then rush back. You know, I described that whole earlier. And in all that altercation, no evidence of anything. Also, as a further addendum, what the hell is with the security of this ship? I know, I know, they were literally taken over by Ferengi and Rascals, but God's sakes. <sighs> Anyways. So, Guinan pushes her. And I have a note here. And it's funny because I actually forgot uh, the bit at the end. I said, you know, I'd like to think Picard sent Guinan. I like to think Picard petitioned. It was like, Guinan, look, could you do me a favor and go talk to Beverly? I, I need someone to reach out to her. And I can't be the one to do it as, as captain. And Guinan was like, you got it. Because she's awesome. And we'll never see her again until generations. <laughs> This is even more... Now, at the first, this is just a theory. At the end of the episode, she says, Oh, I don't play tennis. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so Riker tries to warn her. You know, that's the second time Riker, as a friend, has tried to reach out to someone and warn them about doing something stupid. And by coincidence, both times he's been incorrect. I hope that's not a trend. <laughs> uh, so then he gets on the adjustment before her. Somehow, and then he says, you know, you know what, I'm sorry, one last rant, because I'm already just going off on this episode. One last rant. Why is it when fiction, especially Star Trek, Star Trek is very guilty of this across three franchise, uh, three shows. Uh, Enterprise, excuse me, Enterprise does this, Voyager does this, and TNG does this. All three of them have this problem where when they need someone to be a bad guy, they say that they're after a weapon. We will turn it into a weapon. I will be able to make this technology and make a weapon out of it. I bet if you think about it, you can think of several examples of that, just right off the top of your head. Um, so this, I, this is just even further examining how weird and stupid and dumb this episode is. Because it, it's, it's shorthand. It's literary shorthand. He's a bad guy. Not because he murdered someone. 
Not because of this whole deception thing he's doing, or the fact that he's probably going to kill Crusher. Also, why doesn't he kill Crusher? There's no reason, zero reason, based on his logic to not just kill her. Instead, he exposits to her. What is he, a Bond villain? And that's not a, that's not a compliment, by the way. Anyways, so after not killing her and telling her about how evil he is because he's going to make a weapon, he then says... He dies, she shoots him, and then she kills him, and apparently that's kosher. It's okay, he's a bad guy. It's, it's okay to kill bad guys. <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm being facetious at this point. I'm just, I'm still upset because there's still one last flaw in the episode, because, God, I just can't get away from this. <sighs> She's reinstated. All of the, the hearing, all that, it's all swept away. We don't even hear exactly how or why it was fixed. The, remember, this is the main plot point of the entire episode, is her building up to getting the courage to violate the rules to, to satisfy her conscience, which she did for no reason. Because, again, she found nothing, even though that makes no sense. And in so doing, she gets no consequences from it whatsoever. Why? Remember, the flaw here, the problem was she violated orders, which she did do. And she violated the sanctity of the Ferengi, which she did do. Neither of those things are in dispute. The fact that she finds out that Joe Brill is the one who killed him, maybe. The fact that the, the actual device does work, okay. None of these things mitigate what she actually did. So why is this all of a sudden coup? Now, you could make a story discussing how they could have gone through that. You could have, you want to talk about framing devices, just set this in a hearing. You want to save money at the end of the season anyway, is right. <laughs> Have her discuss the why leading up to... Uh, oh, I can't remember the legal term right now. It's basically... Uh, this is the wrong term. It's just cause. It's saying that I had a justification for doing what I did, and here it is. The problem is that doesn't work either because the autopsy itself, which, remember, is the core problem, led to nothing. So she actually didn't have just cause. <laughs> Whatever. I give up, guys. This isn't lamentation-worthy, because lamentations are so much worse than this. But this is a crap episode. And I forgive me for yammering on so long. I had that whole discussion about the narration thing I wanted to go into. But, guys, i got to be real. This is a lot of what Season seven's going to look like. So, I hope you enjoyed... And I'll see you next week.